0: everyone and welcome to a special bonus episode of Dua Lipa at your service. You can hear we're not in a studio. I'm at the Hay Festival of Literature and Arts here in Hay-on-Wye in Wales. This is a massive event in a tiny town which was once described as the woodstock of the mind. The weather's amazing, the people are having a good time, the energy is just bustling. It's just been so much fun and I'm so happy to be here. And being here I can see why there's so much creative energy here. The guests, everyone from Margaret Atwood to Nick Cave, are first rate. It's my first time here, and I have to say, it's not like any festival I've ever been to before. So, what am I doing here? Fair question. I'm actually just about to go on stage for my first ever live podcast recording with the author Douglas Stewart, whose incredible novel *Shuggy Bane is the first ever book of the month for our brand new Service 95 book club. Go to service95.com and our socials for more information about Book Club, including some really special contributions from Douglas himself on his writing process and the inspiration behind the book. A bit about Douglas before I go on stage with him here at Hay. He's a Scottish writer who pivoted from a very successful career in fashion design to become one of the most talked about authors with the release of Shuggy Bane and its beloved follow-up Young Mungo. Douglas grew up in a working-class household in Glasgow with a single mum who struggled with addiction, themes which are explored in an honest and compassionate way. Shuggie Bain was his debut novel, a 10-year labor of love that was awarded the Booker Prize when it was released in 2020 and made its way to countless Best Book of the Year lists around the world. For me, Shuggie Bain is one of those books that finds pockets of love and hope between the darkness, particularly in the relationship between young Shuggie and his mother Agnes. I've loved living with this novel and all the characters in it since I've read it and I've always wanted to meet the man behind it and ask him all about it. So I'm going to grab my notes and get ready to go on stage to interview Douglas Stewart at Hay Festival in front of a live audience. No pressure. All right. Hi, Hay Festival. (laughs) Thank you to everybody here joining us. I've been a little bit nervous and very excited to do this. And I just want to say a massive, massive thank you to you, Douglas, so much for joining me today and for being such a wonderful partner in helping me launch the Service 95 book club. Your support and everything you've done has been so amazing. And I just couldn't be happier to have Shuggie Bain as our first book for book club. You've just been so generous and gracious with all your time and all the exclusive content that you've done for us, which everyone can find on service95.com and also on our socials. So yes, thank you so much. And I'd like to start by talking a little bit about why I love Shaggy Bane so much (laughs) and why it means so much to me. It's obviously a tough read and I do have a bit of a track record for liking quite emotionally traumatic yeah. <laughs> books. It explores themes of alcohol abuse, toxic masculinity, queer identity. And I guess for me, the true anchor and the thing that I was connected to the most was this unconditional love between Agnes, mm-hmm. Shuggie's mother, and mm-hmm. Shuggie. Mm. And I think there's just such a a beautiful through-line story, through everything that happens, through all the darkness, it really kind of shines through. Mm. Um, And a reviewer said about you, he shows us a lot of monstrous behavior, but not a single monster, only damage. And we'll come back to that, (laughs) I'm sure. But first, I actually really wanted to start by setting the scene of where you were when you first started work on this book. Yeah. You grew up on a housing estate, similar to the one in the book. Yeah. But since leaving for New York in your early 20s, you've really lived a life of contrast.
1: Mm.
0: You had a very enviable and I imagine pretty glamorous career in the fashion industry. You were working as a senior designer for Calvin Klein and Banana Republic. And I guess you were doing that by day. And then by night, you were writing a story of deprivation in 1980s Glasgow. What? What drew you back to that?
1: (laughs) Oh, insanity, I think, first of all, yeah. But actually, before I answer that, let me please just say thank you to you, Dua, for just being such a champion of books and of readers and of writers. Your passion for books is so infectious, and I think all writers are so grateful for what you do to bring more readers to our work. So thank you, and thank you for creating this space for us.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Yeah, you know, I grew up in Glasgow, as you said, and I grew up on a couple of different house and estates. And I was so proud to be working class as a kid, but I was taught from the very early age to be ashamed of being poor and of the addiction that was at home with my family, also because I was gay in a very patriarchal place. And so there was just so much silence in my life. There was not a time between the ages of four and maybe 26 where i felt like i could reveal my whole entire self Mm. and so there was just so much silence there even in the community that knew me best of all but by the time i go to college and i study textiles which becomes fashion which takes me to new york i found my entire self erased Um, everybody that ever met me thought i just had this really glamorous life and that maybe i came from a background of privilege or um or that I was in the place that I was supposed to be in. It would always been such a fight for me to be there. And so it was actually at the height of my fashion career that I sat down to write shaggy Bain. But I think I wrote it as a manifesto for myself, just to, to be very clear, even to my husband, even to very good friends of mine, um, who had never had any other... Ab- way to tell them that I'd grown up and I'd lost my mother to addiction when I was a kid or what it was like to be bullied or what it was like not to have food in the house and all these other things. And and I wanted to capture it as a way to make sense of myself because I felt like a man in two very broken parts mm-hmm. and not a whole person. And, and at the same time, my family in Glasgow couldn't really understand my life in New York because it was so far away from their daily life. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I was forever crossing borders um, And and I didn't want to feel like I was hiding parts of myself anymore.
0: You've spoken about, you know, the writing process for Shuggy Bain. And I think if I remember correctly, it took you 10 years mm. to write it. Mm. And the manuscript originally ran to 1,800 pages. Yeah, And I think...
1: Single spaced.
0: <laughs> and um, th- there was also about 20 drafts yeah. of the book. I mean, it probably went into the high 20s. Yeah. What was it about this book that needed... 10 years like how did you manage to maintain confidence over such a long period of time that you 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 know, you felt that you were actually going to end up with something that really worked.
1: Yeah. You know, I didn't have confidence. I lost confidence many times, but the book wouldn't let me give up on it uh, mm. because it was so integral to me as a person. And in fact, you know, there were many times where I would write something that was quite difficult and I had to put the book away for a couple of months. I, What would happen is it would burn out of me, this sort of very honest or true scene or, or something that a character would do would come out of me very quickly. And I thought, oh, I can't face that again. Mm. And I would put it away. And so it ebbed and flowed over the 10 years. But I was also a kid that grew up in a neighborhood that you know, nobody around me would ever imagine that I would ever go into books or to literature. There weren't any books at home, which is why you and your influence is so important to me. You know, we didn't grow up reading. And and I think young working class men still have a tough time coming to books in that way. And so I didn't have confidence and I was learning as I went on and I was teaching myself how to write and I was failing, but failing in private. But I had this hugely creative job where um I felt very fulfilled, but I was so unhappy because mm. I wasn't doing what my soul wanted to be doing. And and it took a long time even just to give myself permission. You know, Ali Smith said to me recently, she made it very clear to me. She said, I kept saying I was looking for permission from other people. You know, would other writers think I was a writer? Would the establishment let me in? Right. She said, no, you were looking for permission from yourself. And I said, yeah, my God, she saw me in a second. and But the first draft of the book was 1800 pages. And when I I had no one to read it. And I gave it to my husband and I said, please, will you read this for me? <laughs> and he just went, oh my God, no. And, <laughs> and he went, but okay, yeah, okay, I will. And he took it into the other room and it was these two huge legal binders do mm. And I was like in the other room and I was listening to every sigh and every little bit of laughter. And I thought, oh, he likes it, he likes it. And I went in after three hours and I said, are you finished? And he said, no, I'm not finished. And it took him eight months to read this. It was like, it was like war and peace. And anytime he was doing any, and he had a full time job, anytime he was doing anything that wasn't reading my manuscript, I'd be like, don't you have something you should be doing? Um, But he gave it back to me after all that, after I badgered him and for the first, you know, 200 pages, he paid such attention to the line level, to the character development. Mm. And then about page 300, he just gave up the will to live. and he just started to redact it. And then when he gave me back the thing I'd asked him to do, I didn't speak to him for seven weeks. I was so offended by it. And so <laughs> I don't recommend uh, doing that again.
0: How did you know um, when the right time was to let go of Shaggy Bane and put it out into the world? When was that turning point for you?
1: Yeah, it, it stopped being a, a sort of creative joy for me. It was a sale that really pulled me through my life for 10 years. I couldn't wait to get through the work week or to get to the weekend or have a couple of days off at Christmas and just do nothing else but write. Mm. And then after a while, I realized I emotionally and creatively wasn't moving on. And one thing that people don't know is that I finished Shuggy Bane and then I went right into writing Young Mungo. Mm-hmm. Both of these things before I was published, before I ever thought anyone would ever read the books. And so the night that I won the booker, the very first thing that journalists say to you is, congratulations, but how about that really difficult next book? You know, yeah. they're almost dying for you to fail as soon as you've succeeded. And, and I was like, well, too bad for you, because I've already written my next book. <laughs> uh, you know, get it up, yeah. And so um, <laughs> I was like and so i was just writing the whole time and and really by the time i came to be published i had been writing for about 14 years Mm.
0: yeah it's really interesting like when i think about it uh, differently obviously for me Mm. in music terms when i think about writing an album for me it takes me about two or three Mm -hmm, years mm. to kind of really get it but i have to write myself into it Mm -hmm. so i have to write a lot of bad songs to get to the good ones and get to a place but when i think about you writing for for 10 years i almost like imagine in my head this like crime investigation board of like all the different characters and you know the stories and the backstory and where they were before that and Mm -hmm. how you know how they progress into the character that they've become and I I really feel like we can't go any further without talking about the real hero of the story Mm. which is Shuggy's mum Agnes Mm -hmm. um and when we meet Agnes while she's still a woman of immense pride mm. and enormous capacity for love and laughter. She's already quite far along the path of self-destruction mm-hmm. through drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and we received a rather wonderful question for you from the Service 95 book club member, Maggie, who asked, would you do a prequel of Shuggy Bain by diving into Agnes's backstory before her motherhood era? With that in mind, I wonder if you could give us like an insight into Agnes, yeah. Agnes's life before the drink.
1: Yeah, that's an amazing question. I've never actually been asked that before. Um, so thank you, Maggie, for that. Yeah, you know, I think part of why I wrote the book was as a love story to my own mother. My mother is not Agnes Bain, but but I lost my mother to addiction. And I, and I always saw my mother, this woman that was so capable, so loving, so generous, but was very trapped by the circumstances she found herself in, both because she was an uneducated working-class woman that had never been taught to put herself first before her husband or her kids. Mm. And so when all that starts to peel away and to fall apart, she really had nowhere to turn. There was no hope within her. Um, And when the city started to come apart, when unemployment, when my father ran out and left her one day you know she kind of started to disintegrate inside herself but what i understood from an early age was that that was not the whole of this woman this woman was the most wonderful iceberg and i only ever knew one facet of her and you're right she was this wonderful young woman who had so much hope and so much um just had such a bright future and was well loved and and i tried to show that in the novel um but I don't know that I could go back and show more of that. I don't know yeah. if after 12 years I have more in it to mm-hmm. give. But one thing I do sometimes regret is that I didn't call the book Agnes Bain because I think truly it is about the mother at the heart of it.
0: Was there any Agnes, young Agnes in the earlier drafts?
1: There was, there was lots of young Agnes. and And part of the part of the joy of writing the book was, was finding out stories through my own family and through, mm. you know, friends of the family to, to allow me to understand this woman. Because when your mother dies at 16, you don't get to know her as an adult, as mm. peers, as friends, whatever you'd like to say. Your relationship is always as a child and a mother. Um, and actually one of the wonderful things about addiction was that it does tend to sort of break the walls down. Um, it's a very leveler. It means someone who's suffering with addiction treats you in a very direct way and tells you things actually that perhaps mothers wouldn't ordinarily tell children Mm. um and so i did get to know some things but yeah i mean one of the interesting things was is it's not my family but you know there are siblings in it and i also have siblings and my siblings what is fascinating is when a parent has three children she will allow that she will have three very different children but oftentimes we can have three different mothers and my siblings had really happy childhoods. Um, you know, my grandparents were alive. There was four wages in the house. They went to Italy once a year, Spain another time. Um, they were they had really bright, positive childhoods. And then I just intersected in a very different part of my mother's life. She mm. was in her forties when she had me. The city was at 28% mass unemployment. She'd already come to the end of a romantic life, I think she felt. And so I just had a very different childhood. Mm. So maybe my sister should write the story of, the story, of young. Yeah. Been.
0: It's really interesting. I um, I recently joined a, a reading group mm. at the Downview Women's Prison in Sutton, Mm-mm. as a guest of the Books Unlocked program, uh, which is in partnership between the Booker Prize Foundation and the National Literacy Trust, mm. and it gives people in prisons access to high quality literature. Mm. And it was an incredible experience. We discussed Chuggy Bane, mm. um, which they'd actually previously chosen as their LGBTQ book of the month. Cool. Um, and I promised the women that I would bring in some of their questions for you today. Oh, amazing. And one of the women drew attention to a really remarkable scene in the book mm. where Agnes is about to confront her slightly snitty neighbor, Colleen, uh-huh. and tell her that she had slept with her husband, Jamesy, mm-hmm. uh, in return for her taking Shuggy fishing, which mm-hmm. is a promise that he actually never keeps. What follows is extraordinary. Mm. Um, and I have a question for you, But but first, I wonder if you would read some of that text for us.
1: Yeah, I absolutely will. Um, I've actually never read this before, so forgive me if I, I stumble a little <laughs> bit. But also there's some, uh, there's some raw language in it. So clutch your children, clutch your pearls, uh, <laughs> clutch the hem of your skirt like Colleen's about to do,
0: if that's, <laughs>
1: if that's what you'd like to do. But yes, Agnes and Colleen are elementally opposed to each other. They're neighbours. They're absolutely identical socioeconomically and generationally. But Agnes has such airs and graces that Colleen, the minute she sees her, hates her. And so there's deep animosity between these women. But in that animosity, there is also deep compassion. Agnes stumbled back to the curb, clumsy with drink. Jamesy swear up deliberately and narrowly missed clipping her with the back tire. The road filled with the usual cloud of soot agnes was blinking on the opposite curb but colleen hadn't the peace of mind to see her in her thin face was a wildness and an emptiness alive and dead at the same time she fell with a crack to the tarmac and lay loose legged and blank faced in the dust agnes looked up and down the street like a person who wanted to stick the boot in or a person who wanted to run away from a car crash she was unsure which There was a faint breeze fluttering all the curtains, but no one came to help, no cousins, no other pit women, and silhouetted at the McAveney window stood the four remaining children, lined up in descending heights like little Russian dolls, all with the same sad, beautiful face. One day, Agnes would give them all a deep, hot bath to really stick it into Colleen. From the gutter, there was the loud rip, rip noise of hair being pulled from a brush, a sticky tugging sound, like an old gummy linoleum being torn up. Agnes stepped closer to the flailing woman, the belly full of flat lager, the dust, the tangle of limbs, made it hard for her to understand what she was seeing. At first, she thought Colleen was ripping her football top into shreds, but as she stepped closer, Agnes could see the clumps of matted hair the woman was ripping free in each claw. Rip, rip, it came out in wild handfuls. Agnes flitted around the fallen woman. Before she knew it, she was kneeling in the dirt, using her ringed fingers to tame the furious talons. She wrapped herself tightly around Colleen, here, what's all this then? She said it in a voice so kind that it shocked even her. Colleen went limp in her arms and Agnes gently lowered the woman's claws into her lap. She prized open the fists which were still clutching the ripped out hair and began pulling the thick strands from between the thin fingers as if she were cleaning an old comb. Colleen's hollow's eyes stared into the dirt for a long time before she spoke. I should have known, I should have left well alone instead of getting on at him while he was down. All I said was I didn't want any more mouse to feed. Since that mine shut, he was coming at me night and day like a teenager on the boil. He was never any use at that pulling out nonsense. Agnes was staring at the bald patches on Colleen's head. There was dust on the blood prick scabs. Five wains is enough for any woman. Colleen snorted. He would add a hundred if he could. But I just thought, fuck you, McIvenny. And to spite him, I shut the shop. Colleen started to cry again the tears came in long thick streams almost as if she had a leak they poured down her nose dripping off her chin and she turned her eyes towards Agnes and looked at her then as if for the first time that must have been when he started fucking around Agnes was conflicted she would have told any other woman that it would get better in time even though she knew it would sit on her chest for the rest of her life but she offered no such salve to Colleen it occurred to her then that they were equals now and she couldn't be ashamed at how her insides lifted at the thin woman's bad news. Miner's women were pacing in the street, cousins and the wives of cousins circling nervously as if Colleen had turned into an animal they were unsure of how to approach. She walked up to me as nice as you like with these sunglasses, big fancy ones and two shades of brown. She said her name was Elaine, asked if she could have a word in private. I thought she was from the catalogue, thought she was trying to sell me some shite for the Wayne's Christmas. Colleen let out a groan. She uncurled her fingers and took the hem of her skirt. With a single tug, she split the thin fabric in two from hem to belly. Then she fell listlessly back onto the pavement. For the love of God, Agnes grabbed at the shredded fabric. Colleen had no underwear on. The frizzy hair of her cunt was shocking against the sallow smoothness of her belly. We've got to get you in the house. Up, up. Agnes tried to lift her, but she was too uncoordinated with a drink. They toppled over into the stewer, and Agnes tore the skin off her knees. She tried to drag Colleen inside, but the wasted woman, nothing but a pile of bones, slackened all her muscles and slid back into the dirt like an unruly child. Agnes stood over her, sweating and spitting. You can't lie here like that. With her eyes closed, Colleen moved her hand across the dirty pavement like she was caressing fine sheets. The words came out slower and thicker now. I don't care. Let Jamesy e. McAveney hear that his wife died on the road with her old cunt-out. There was nervous laughter for some children on bikes. Agnes gave Colleen a hard shake. She found she enjoyed it, so she did it again. Madam, have you no pride? Colleen's eyes opened wide and then closed. Her breath grew lighter. Here, what's getting into you? What have you taken? But the soft pile of bones did not answer. The fences were hung full of women squawking like big noisy crows. The news had spread fast. Colleen's cousins were screaming blue murder and James's sisters were throwing their fists in defense of his good name. James's mother, 80 if she was a day, was spitting and swinging a balding mop like it was a scythe. Not knowing what else to do, Agnes drew off her tights and then her own knickers. She did it with a brass neck, stumbling half-cut right there in the street. She struggled to put them on, Colleen, and it was like dressing a life sized dolly whose limbs, instead of being stiff and rigid, were limp and heavy with slow blood. Colleen wasn't talking anymore. Agnes sank to the dust beside her. She regarded her expensive white underwear, luminous with good bleach. They hung on the thinner woman like a lacy nappy, and they were, Agnes thought, more kindness than she deserved. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, you. Douglas. That's a really powerful scene. And, and I wonder if you can dig in a bit on what the scene symbolizes for you about the relationship between the two women mm. and also about the status in society of women in this novel.
1: That's right. Yeah. You know, Shuggy comes in quite a a long literary tradition of looking at minor strikes and mass unemployment, but I'd found all the books that I loved had always focused on the heterosexual male experience Mm. because it was our dads and our brothers whose job defined what it was we did, what kind of family were, and they were the ones put out of work. But I was the son of a single mother, so I was living right in the centre of that. But my entire world was feminine. It was my mother. We didn't have a dad at home. And it also meant I was part of a network of other mothers, other single mothers, other women struggling with drink. And so I knew when I was writing Shuggy Bain, I wanted to write the same sort of landscape but from a very feminine perspective. You know, there is some cruelty towards Agnes from men in the book, but that's almost part of the time. And what I wanted to show was how sometimes even in communities where we can get into the cliche that working class communities have so much solidarity and we're all in it together, that solidarity comes at the cost of conforming, of fitting in, mm. of being a good mother, of being a decent woman, of going to chapel, of, you know, always putting your kids first. And and if you were a woman that uh, had pride in yourself or had notions above your station or you thought the Scottish word is gallus, then you could be... Uh, you know, isolated and and mm-hmm. thought of as as terrible, and and also to be honest, the reputation of women was the most valuable currency there, because the I knew it certainly as a young boy. But the moment someone said your mother was like this or your mother's that kind of woman, it was terrible. It was it yeah. was world ending and crushing. And so Shuggy and Agnes are both in isolation. Shuggy can't fit in with the boys uh, because he's too effeminate. And I wanted Agnes not to be able to fit in with the women because actually she has big ideas and big notions and she doesn't talk in a regular Glaswegian accent Mm. because she thinks of herself as slightly better and the women can't bear it. Um, There's nothing wrong with the Glaswegian accent, by the way. <laughs> I wish mine was thicker. Actually,
0: the, 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 the Glaswegian uh, were... dialect yeah. that actually goes through the whole book is, yeah. is really amazing. I feel like while I was reading it, I kept finding myself yeah. speaking in a Glaswegian accent in my head. And if I was reading alone in my room, then I would just like quietly say it out loud. Yeah. Are you going to <laughs> give us it now? Quietly say it out loud. And I would see if I could get it. Um, but it, it's, it's good. It's good for <laughs> practicing a Glaswegian accent, for sure. Yeah. Um, I have another question from down view, which is an observation really from one of the women in the reading group Who found a lot of resonance between Agnes's experience of alcoholics anonymous mm-hmm. and that of her own mothers mm-hmm. And there's a period of hope in the novel when Agnes maintains sobriety for a year and yeah. Shuggie says to his friend Leanne My mammy had a good year once it was lovely mm-hmm. During this time Agnes finds a community within AA only to see it fall away when she relapses mm-hmm. And in fact, the same thing happens with uh, Eugene, Mm. Agnes's boyfriend. And I wonder if these scenes were informed by your own experience growing up. And what have you observed by the way that we treat people with addiction?
1: Yeah, that's a brilliant question. You know, the funny thing about addiction for me is because it was a crisis in community. There was so many people that were suffering. And I was lonely because of my queerness and other things. But I was never lonely within addiction. Mm -hmm. We always had support of people around us in a way because other mothers other fathers were suffering and then both Alateen and Alanon uh, gave us a lot of fellowship and so In a really strange way, we were never, I was never quite alone in it. I think maybe had I been a middle-class family on a street that was flourishing, Mm -hmm. then the addiction would have felt very, very lonely in that way. Mm -hmm. But like I said, this is a community as well that can't tell the difference sometimes between a good time and a bad time. It's a very thin line. Mm -hmm. Um, But my own experience with it um, as a kid was just the terror and the anxiety you would have when your parent suffered with addiction. You know, it's, It was part of my life from when I was about three or four years old. I was very aware. And in the time, we didn't have any language like mental health or someone suffering or having other issues. It was just they drank too much and they were a terror. And I knew from about the age of four that I was never the most important person in the room, that everything that affected my mother, this woman, would set uh, up everything for the day, whether we had a good day or a bad day. Mm. And what that does to a kid is it means you're always compensating. You're always trying to give that person what you perceive they lack. So you're mm-hmm. trying to be funny or you're quieter, or you're neater or you're better at school or you don't eat too much or you, you know, mm-hmm. you eat everything in front of you, whatever you think it is. Um, and the anxiety in that is overwhelming because you're always trying to manage an adult's behavior even mm-hmm. before, you know, really quite what you're doing. But the thing about alcoholism for me as a kid was the terror of it. Because also when people drink, you don't quite know what kind of drunk they're going to be. Sometimes it can be a huge amount of fun. You yeah. know, and I would go to school in the morning, I'd come back for lunch and the house would be full of women. And they were having <laughs> like a wild party and you'd be like, it's half a living. And they were like having a blast. And so as a kid, you just never knew if it was going to be really sad or really funny mm. or really desperate.
0: Mm. yeah there's something also really interesting about alcoholics anonymous and you know the, the whole idea of like a person finds a community with an aa and then it falls away once uh, a person relapses right. and i guess that's also because it's a peer-led community group mm. and although it's really an amazing program it's also only really there for people that actually want that's right the help that's right and so i think a lot of people can see similarities at least this woman at Downview saw a lot of similarities between Agnes and her mm. mother and people kind of walking away mm-hmm. when there was substance abuse and I think yeah. sometimes for some people it's almost easier to let let go or not be there mm-hmm. because it's harder harder to be there in a way. Right. I yeah, don't know yeah. it's it's you have to want quite, you have right. to yeah. yeah it's quite an like a double-edged sword almost.
1: That's right. And and that's the structure of the book, Dua. You know, I started the story with Agnes surrounded by people that loved her. She's mm. in that flat and all of her childhood friends are there and she's the belle of the ball. She's the most loved woman. Mm. And by the end of the novel, everyone peels away because other people's addiction is really hard for us to cope with. Um, and it's, it's hard to... You know, it's hard to witness. It's hard when you cannot help someone you love very deeply mm. uh, get better. And everybody really reaches a point where they have to save themselves, and that's the central question, I think, for Shuggy. Mm. You know, how how far will he go to save his mother before he has to save himself?
0: Yeah, I'd um, yeah. I'd be very remiss yeah. of us to not talk about the men in Shuggy <laughs> Bang. Uh,
1: do we have to? Yes, we <laughs> have to. We
0: have to. And I think we we should we should start with Shuggy's own father, Shug. Yeah. Does he have any redeemable qualities? No. <laughs> um, do you have any sympathy for him?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah.
0: I, it's, you know, when you think about that time, 1980s, Glasgow, the mm. time of deindustrialization, like yeah. everything that was happening, it must have been quite difficult for the mm. men. That's right. Of course, too. And then I think about everything that Agnes went through, and, and I keep. You know, questions that go round in my head is—is is Agnes maybe a hard woman mm-hmm. to love, mm-hmm. or does she become so as a result of the pain that 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 has happened in her marriage?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's the chicken and the egg, and I didn't want to answer that mm. because I I felt like they both happen at the same time and who knows where it begins in the very first draft of the novel. I'd set the character up that something Shug abandons Agnes. And I'd set that up as a break line where when he walks out, she turns to drink. But as I did more research and as I spoke to people who really suffered with addiction, I realized that things are never as clean cut as that. It can Mm. be a slow ebbing out of hope or you can feel very lost over a long period of time. And also you can be in denial for many years um, and people can see it before you can see it yourself. But you know I didn't have an awful lot of sympathy for Shug at the beginning of the book and he's addicted in a way too his addiction is he takes an awful lot of his own self-worth from how women adore him and he's Mm. a man who's losing all of his looks and he probably isn't naturally very charming anyway but he has a limited power over women and he treats them appallingly for that and I couldn't Find a point of sympathy for that, but I knew I had to write about it because it was such an ugly and true thing. But as I was writing the novel, part of the reason why it took 10 years is because I had to mature. I was only 30 when I began and I was 40 when I finished. And and that feels ancient now, but like I was trying to come to a point where I had empathy for everybody in the book so that The pain wasn't Shuggy and Agnes's, but trying to trace it through all the characters to see how they were also hurting. Mm. And when I got there, I found I could write the novel with less judgment. I could just write it as it had to be written.
0: It's interesting to kind of have a non-biased opinion, even though maybe some things have, you know, connections to your personal life, even though the book's not directly linked to things that have happened to you. At Service 95, we asked you for your recommended reading list yeah. and you've very generously provided us with two mm-hmm. um one for gay classics and one for working class mm-hmm. classics and you explained that there are very few writers who straddle both genres mm-hmm. and as an adult gay male writer from a working class background did you feel a sense of responsibility to to fill that gap and how important is it to you to tell these stories
1: Yeah, I think there's always the burden of the underrepresented, Um, and because we don't hear enough stories like that, sometimes when you have one, it's meant to speak for everyone. Mm. And of course it can't, right? No book can really do that. We're all living such nuanced lives with different experiences. but. You know, like I said, you know, I didn't read books until I was about 17 or 18 because they were actually quite dangerous. Um, they felt, first of all, like they belonged to a society that was down South and middle class, but then they also seemed really feminine. And, and I was a bit worried that I'd be outed if I like said, I love books. The boys around me would be like, yeah, faggot. You know, <laughs> they'd be like really terrible about it. And so I kind of stayed away and I, and I only really started to read them when I was 17 or 18. and And then I go on this huge discovery to, to get beyond the classics and figure out working class voices and mm. then queer voices. And I found often that queer voices were also incredibly upper class or middle class. And, mm. and they were writing about issues about mobility or um, about communities that still had the ability to go and find the tribe in capital cities or to be in a boarding school or to be in the army or to to up and leave whatever situation they were in. And as a working class person, I didn't have any of that ability. The only universe I knew was the streets that I lived on, really the only part of the world that I saw Doa. And so if there was any problems with that, I still had to confront it because that was the only place I knew. And I wanted to write with both Shuggy and Mungo, a queer person who was coming to terms with their queerness in a community that's the only community they know.
0: Mm. It's really interesting to hear you say about um, books being dangerous. Mm. I mean, especially now with everything that's happening, there's lots of bans on books Mm -hmm. that have been happening, lots of writers being censored. I think it's really interesting i was having a conversation actually with minjin lee mm. on my on my podcast before on the last season and she was saying how books are dangerous because the words that we say can actually do something can actually change right. can change the world and i think that's also incredibly powerful mm-hmm. as well so i'm glad that you've <laughs> you've come to a place to to, yeah. to write this this incredible story and really give a lot of nuance and tell a different story as well in your own story in your own way yeah. and yeah, Shugi might have taken you 10 years to write. Yes. Um, but I guess in the three years since publication, like you said, you wrote another best-selling novel, <laughs> Young Mungo, um, which is just uh, equally wonderful. I absolutely, absolutely love that. And there are going to be TV adaptations for both novels. We hope. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, it's looking good, <laughs> which I know that you're currently writing the scripts for. Yeah. How does writing for TV differ like I wonder what you gain and you lose in the process of doing that.
1: Yeah, it's it's been so wildly different and and at first when they approached me to do it I said no because I felt like I'd given so much of my life to these characters and these books. Mm. But then I grew up without books, but we loved stories. We loved telly. You know, we, we were curious and we were compassionate and we turned to these sort of film and cinema and that was how we connected with one another. And so I felt like I had a responsibility to tell these stories on screen and to make sure they were told in a way, even if I fail, and the fear of failure is always with you, but even if I fail, at least I'd done it myself, you know, I'd, mm. I'd failed uh, myself. And so it's been such a journey because the story, the novel has to change entirely because the medium changes. You can't, you know, take the viewer anywhere you want to go. You have to really build the world and show the world and there's the line that says, if you show a gun, someone has to use a gun. And that's very anti-novelistic because we just love colour. We just love to tell mm. you things for the sake of, you know, telling you things. And so it's been great. And the team at A24 have really helped me to hone my skill and given me a lot of feedback and and a lot of space as well to tell the story as it as it should be told. But um, I'm hoping one day we can cast you in one of these adaptations. Oh, gosh, I've got to brush <laughs>
0: up on my Glaswegian accent. Well, that's what you're doing, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um Douglas thank you so much. Well, I'm still buzzing after that chat and I hope you all enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. That was amazing and scary and exciting all at once and I kind of want to do it again sometime. But thank you so much to Douglas for joining me and for all he's done to make the launch of the Service 95 book club so special. Shuggy Bane is one of those books that stuck with me since first reading it. I'm so thrilled it was our first book of the month. Keep checking service95.com throughout the rest of the month for more Shuggy Bane content and stay tuned for our next title as there's so much more to come from the Service 95 book club.